taught at our church. And the rest of us, we can turn to the book of the Revelation. The book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 2. We have been looking at the book now. This is our fourth week in looking at it. And uh, we've seen an outline as we've gone through that um, Jesus presented, I believe, in uh, chapter 1, verse 19. And that is that he told John to write about the things which have been, the things that are, and the things that will be. And last week we talked about, as we went into the, the message of the churches, that there was, in the things that have been, the message to John, and the things that are is the message to the churches, and then we will be shortly coming to the things that will be, and that is the message of the future. In the message of the churches, there are seven churches to which John has been writing, and that is to the church of Ephesus, the church of Smyrna, to the church of Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Last week we looked at Ephesus. Today we want to look at the church of Smyrna. Now, as I said last week, if you remember this, I said last week that I was hoping to do two or three churches today. But as I started to study um, for the message today, I was really, I really got caught up into it again. I mean, I was, you can imagine. Anyways, and I was really impacted by the message to the church this morning, and impacted by the fact that I am seeking to fly through probably one of the most important sections of this book. And so the Lord really chastised me, if you would, um, with, spiritually. And I decided, no, I need to, we need to take the time. Because this is a message to the churches. And this is important, not something that's sort of just fly through. And so we're going to look at just today, just to the church of Smyrna. Now, in this letter to the church of Smyrna, there is the same four groupings that we saw with the church of Ephesus. There is the uh, introduction of Christ the commendation of Christ, the challenge of Christ, and the promise of Christ. And so in this letter, as Steve has already read earlier, we see, beginning in verse 8, that to the messenger, or the angel of the church of Smyrna, and if you remember that, hopefully, coming back from all the way back to the first message, when we talked about the, what the word angel means, it's the word angelos, and it means messenger. So this is not necessarily a heavenly celestial body. This is probably, honestly, a, a man who was... Who was the courier taking back the message. It may have been an elder, it may have been a deacon of the church, but somebody who was coming back and forth to John from the church of Smyrna. And so, to the messenger of the church of Smyrna, write, these things says the first and the last, who was dead and who is alive again. And so first he says, I am the first and the last. Now again, if you go back to the book of Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 40 to 48, and you read Isaiah 40 to 48, you're going to see a lot of things of which Yahweh declares himself to be. One of those is that he is the beginning and he is the ending. He is the first, he is the last. And so these terms that Jesus is using to describe himself are describing himself as the I am. I am the first and the last. Secondly, I am he who was dead and came to life. I think this is pretty clear. There's a lot of people who want to debate who's really speaking um, right here. But the only one that we know of who was, who was dead and came to life was A, Lazarus, yes, and B, Jesus. So you have a decision to make. There was the widow of Nain's son. Oh, that's right. You had the widow of Nain's son as well. And then there was the guy who was thrown into the, the, the tomb of Elijah, or Elisha, Elijah or Elisha. He hit, hit, hit the bones of the prophet and he came back to life. That was in the Old Testament. So anyways, so we have these different people that we've got to figure out who this is. But... Um, Clearly, with, along with the, uh, the other indicators that we've been getting about who's writing these letters, we know that this is 
Jesus Christ. And so another testimony to the fact that of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was dead. He wasn't just, um, you know, in a, um, what do you call it? Yeah, a coma type thing. And, and he came back to life. There's a lot of people who want to say that as well. Um, and so, but he literally was dead. At least that's his testimony. And he did come back to life. So that's who he was. Okay. Secondly, we see his com- commendation to the church. And I think this is really exciting. Beginning in verse 9. He says, because remember, back to, to, to Ephesus. This message is totally contra- different than to, to Ephesus. He says, I know your works, your tribulation, and your poverty. Note the parentheses. But what? Rich. First thing I know is I know the riches of your faith. I know the riches of your faith. Now he says, now he says how do you get that? Look at him, what he says. He says, I know your work. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty, right? And then he says what? But you are rich. They must have the attitude of great humility, I think, about themselves. They're not anything special. Remember we talked about this in Sunday school, about God hasn't chosen many of the uh, wise, many of the mighty, or many of the, the noble of the, of the world. Rather, he chose the things which are foolish, the things that are weak, and the things which are ignoble, that he may put to shame the things of the earth. And so, I think this church, the church of Smyrna, the believers here, have got this down pat. They're humble. They're not looking at their works and their tribulation and, and poverty as something that's about themselves, but rather, they're living for the Lord. But God says, listen, in spite of all that, in spite of the, the toil that you're, you're going through, in spite of the tribulation that you're, you're going through, despite of your poverty, you are rich. And again, as we talked about going through the book of Corinthians, it's a matter of your perspective. And so whose perspective do you have on life? This is important. According to the world standard, the church of Smyrna would be what? Would be nothing. But according to God's standard, they were rich. Secondly, he says, I know the blasphemy of the synagogue of Satan. I know the blasphemy of the synagogue of Satan. Now, again, as a Gentile, sometimes we can read through this thing and miss it. But just look at that and read it. What is Jesus saying in this statement about something in Smyrna? Say again. Who is? The Jews. The Jews. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. What was a synagogue? What is a synagogue? It's a place of worship, quote-unquote. Okay, It's a Jewish place of worship. It's a place where Jewish people go to read the Torah, to read the law, and to, quote-unquote, worship God. Okay? Were they doing that in Smyrna? Yes. They were at a synagogue, they go to synagogue, they read the Torah, and they worshiped God. I didn't say this. Jesus said this. What did Jesus call them? Satan worshippers. Wow. Yeah, I didn't say it that way, but yeah, that really brings it to home, doesn't it? But they're a synagogue of Satan. It's a place where God's work is not being done. Rather, it's Satan's work. I've said this, I don't know how many times through the years, but there is no middle ground. You're either on God's side 
or you're on Satan's side. You can't say I'm sitting in the middle. You're not. You're either a worshiper of God or you're not a worshiper of God. And if you're not a worshiper of God, you're a follower of Satan. Because Satan said, I will be like the Most High God. And so even if you're not a Satan worshiper, quote unquote, which not, there's not very many people who are like Antoine LaHaye or whatever that guy's name is, that you know he's the, the high priest of the Satanists. Not many people would say, oh, I'm a Satan worshiper. But the reality is Satan, the, the idea of Satan worship is worshiping yourself. Or putting something alongside of God saying, I make this God. And so that was the, the sin of Satan. Satan said, I will be like the Most High God. He didn't say, I will be the Most High God. Because he knew. He was, our, he was a created being. He knew he couldn't be God. But he said what? I'll be like the Most High God. I'm going to get everybody to worship me. And so, Jesus says that those who were in that synagogue there, the Jews who were in that synagogue, were really a synagogue of Satan. Now, why do we think that he had, I mean, this is really a bold term. Why would Jesus come out like this and state this? Not only were they just going there to worship Torah and to, to, to study Torah and to worship God, Okay? But, they were actively seeking to do what? Destroy the church. To, to attack the church. To attack the gospel being distributed. And so, again, Satan actively seeks to do what? Destroy the church and destroy the gospel going out. It hasn't changed over the 2,000 years. The fact is that there still is a war that's going on. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, right? Against the spiritual darkness. And so there is this war that's going on, and we have got to get a grip on that. Christ has. And he says, listen, I know your richness of your faith. I know that you love me. And I know that you're being opposed. To me, there's a great comfort in that. And so, Christ's commendation, commendation. But then Christ then gives him a challenge. And this is a, a challenge that is, again, unlike the challenge that he gave to the church of Ephesus. To the church of Ephesus, it was where the, the, the um, epitaph ended, and we'd like to say, don't say this anymore, because to the church of Ephesus, he says, you've lost your first love. And if you don't repent, I'm going to come and remove the candlestick. He doesn't say that to Smyrna. Rather, what he says to the church of Smyrna beginning in verse um, 10, is do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He says, don't fear, don't fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. You will have tribulation. There's a lot of times... I would like to know what's coming up. So I can plan. Wouldn't you like to know so you can plan? No. The truth is, you really don't want to know. I appreciate, being a dad, Marsha's testimony about that young lady. I've got a daughter who's passed now being a senior in college and one who's at the same school as a sophomore. I think of those things sometimes. You have no control over those people traveling about. Could you imagine being the dad, watching his daughter 
Worse yet, could you imagine knowing 24 hours ahead of time that was going to happen? What would you spend the next 24 hours doing? Trying what? Locker in a room, trying to, well, trying to get it not to happen. Okay? And so the reality is, we're all going to go through times of suffering and times of tribulation. Christ told them ahead of time. And he told them ahead of time in order to encourage them. In order to strengthen them. And the encouragement and the strengthening is to us as well. Jesus said to the disciples, in this world you're going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Okay? And so I believe he's saying the same thing to them. He says, listen, don't fear. Now, in this, this, this tribulation, he gives them four different parts in this verse about this tribulation that they're not supposed to fear. First of all, there is the imminency of the tribulation. Note what he said, what was going to happen. That it was a... Let's go backwards. Ah, I messed myself up. Shouldn't have done that. Okay. The imminency. That it was about to happen. Twice he says, this is about to occur. When, when Christ says that, what does he mean? It's about to happen. I, again, I, I, I take the word of God literally, okay? And so, again, as I take these and I take the application, though, I've got to analyze this to myself, that there is, right around the corner, potentially, what? Tribulation is going to happen. Now, that doesn't mean because he said it to them and I'm studying it today that it's going to be tomorrow, but the reality is, in this world, there is going to be tribulation. Secondly, what is the intent of the, of the tribulation? It's the test. He says right off the bat, he says, you're going to go to these strings that you may be tested. Now, in this, this concept of being tested, I want to take a little excursion. Because I think that this is, this is where I was really involved in. Because God comes to this church and promises them what? Trials. He promises them tribulation. He says, this is what's going to happen to you. And it's going to happen to you so that you can be tested. And so I want to do an excursion on, on, on trials. We're going to look at the intensity. We're going to look at investment in a second. Oh, that's where it could like, okay. It's about to happen that you may be tested. And here's our excursion on trials. First of all, on the excursion of trials, there are two words that we need to look at. The first word is periosmos, okay? Now, I, I, did, I did put the transliteration of it so that you can at least read it. Um, but again, that's in Greek, not in English. But the word periosmos, and you see that the word periosmos means a troublesome event. A troublesome event. Now... This troublesome event can be broken down into two situations. It's like, the, like a coin, like looking at a coin. You've got heads and you've got tails. The one side is that this troublesome event can be a temptation. Secondly, this troublesome event can be a trial. The difference is how you go through it. So how you go through the troublesome event will determine whether it is this periosmos is a tribulation or whether it's a trial. If you fail the test, stumbling through the troublesome event, then it was a temptation. If, on the other hand, you pass going through the troublesome event successfully, it was a trial. If you stumble, if you fail, it reveals sin in you. Does that make sense? Okay? And so there's sin that needs to be, needs to be worked on, needs to be confessed, it needs to be purged, it needs to be uh, worked on. Secondly, though, again, if you pass and you go through the event successfully, it reveals Christ in you. It reveals your faith in Christ in a mighty way. 
Okay? And that's what we want to look at. So these are the definitions of these words. Secondly, we have the word dokamos. Dokamos, now let me go back to periosmos. You can see it's an event. Dokamos refers to an individual. Okay? And so you can see it's to be tested and proven genuine. Now, again, there are verb forms of each of these words, which we're going to look at in a moment. Um, but as a whole, periosmos refers to the event itself. Dokamos refers to the individual, him or herself. Okay? And so I want to look at this real quick as a little excursion here. First of all, the source of the trials. What are the source of trials? First of all, Satan. Satan is one of the primary sources of trials. Consider Job. Go back in the book of Job. You don't have to do that right now. You can look at this later. But in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, we note that in, there was a day when, Satan, or when, when God was in this throne room and the, 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 the angels were coming before God and Satan came before God. And God said to Satan, you can go check me out on this, but God said to Satan, he says, where have you been? And Satan says, oh, I've been to and fro. I've been just checking out the world. You know, just checking everything out. I think he's probably checking out the people living on earth looking for a what? A way that he caused them to stumble, right? And God says to, jo to Satan, he says, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him. None who worship me like, worships me like he does. Satan comes back to God and, that's, and says what? It's because you haven't allowed me to touch him. It's because you put a hedge about him and you haven't let me out. God said, fine. Go ahead. You can touch him, but you, or you can mess with him, but you can't touch him. You can do whatever you want to him, but you can't physically touch him. Well, what's the next thing we see? Satan comes to, to Job, and Job loses his entire family. Okay, his, all of his children were in a house um, having a party. A tornado came down, and it blew up the house, and they all died. Secondly, a band of marauders came, and they, and they stole all of his herds. Uh, another band came and stole the, the rest of it. So he had camels, I think, and he had sheep. So anyway, so there was three things that happened, and everything was gone. Every, so his family's destroyed, his, all of his herds and his cattle were gone. Messengers come in, and they declare this one after another. I mean, could you imagine getting one of those pieces of news? And could you imagine sitting there within a space of 15 minutes and having three different servants come in and tell you you just lost all your family, you just lost all your herds, and you just lost all your other herd? I mean... You basically have nothing left. You have no family, and you have, and herds to him was his money. Okay? Your company's destroyed. He didn't lose his wife. He didn't lose his wife. He did not lose his wife, though. He, anyways, we won't go there. Uh, anyways, <laughs> he, did, he didn't lose his wife. We'll talk about her in a moment. Anyways. And so Job, though, on response to all this, says, The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we're told in all this, Job did not sin. Okay? So Job recognized that within all this, that ultimately, though Satan can come at us, he can't come at us unless what? God allows it. You get it? So there came another day when Satan was came before the throne of God, and God said to him, he says, Hey, Satan, Lucifer, have you uh, considered my servant Job? Unlike him, you got me to allow you to, to mess with him, and he still hasn't lost his integrity. He still worships me. And Satan said what? That's because you haven't let me touch him. 
didn't even think he talked just like this, did you? Anyways. And so, you've seen the movies. You know what Satan talks like. Anyways. And, 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 and so he says, let me at him, God. And God says what? Go ahead, but you cannot take his life. You can touch him, but you can't take his life. And so the next thing we know about Job, poor Job, right? I mean, poor Job. I mean, sometimes don't you feel like a Job? I remember years ago when Gabrielle was 18, going on two, she was about 18 to 21 months old. We had a doctor, a, a, a pediatrician at that time. His name was Moore. Anyways, and he didn't go to church with us at the time. Anyways, no, that's a good thing about you. I was impressed with you. Anyways, I was. I mean, you, you, anyways, it was all the Lord, but you elevated. My daughter was stumbling and falling. We went in, and there was an inner infection, so we had moxicillin and put her on medication. But the next day, she wasn't just stumbling, but she couldn't even pick up her arms. And so I didn't have insurance. I wasn't getting paid much. I was, a, you know, I was working, I don't know how many hours, 40 to 60 hours at the, 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 the company, and I was, doing, I was an assistant pastor of the church. And Anyway, so Marcia calls me up at work and tells me this, and I'm thinking, what do you think when you hear that you want to take somebody to the doctor? Nothing personal, seriously, okay? Ching, 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 ching. And, uh, okay. And so I'm thinking, I, I can't even make my ends meet. And, and now we're going to take her to the doctor again, two days in a row. So finally, I mean, the Lord convicted me, and anyways, you know, I told her to take her, and so I felt really bad, so I wound up leaving work early, you know, to go meet her at, at the doctor's office. I was glad I did, because we got there, and Steve, you know how verbose he is, and how just outgoing and, and, and talkative he is, just as, he has changed a lot. You don't know <laughs> Steve more than I, anyways. Anyway, so he, he, he checked her out, and, uh, and just kind of yeah, did that, mm. And, and walked out of the room. Didn't say a thing. <laughs> Next thing we know, Dr. Miller comes in the room with him. Dr. Miller checks her out. He goes, looks at her, looks at Steve, goes like that. And they walk out of the room. <laughs> I want to lynch somebody at this point. Anyway. <laughs> Steve comes walking back in. Dr. Moore comes walking back in. And uh, he says, um, well, I, Dr. Miller confirmed what, I, what I, I believe that this is. He says, this is a... A very rare thing, he says, it's called Guillain-Barre syndrome. He says it's an ascending paralysis. He says when you're, has, that Gabrielle, and he knew that Gabrielle had a viral infection a week earlier. He says after you have this virus, the body doesn't stop fighting. But rather, there's no more virus to, to fight, so it starts fighting itself. And so it's actually destroying its own neural system. And so, um, you know, you need to get down to MCG. They have a pediatric neurologist waiting for you. And... Being the guy that I am, you know, it's pretty close to supper time. I wanted to know. I said, so how, how soon do we need to be down here? You know, I mean, you know, just tonight or what? You know, he says, right now. Do <laughs> you remember that? Right now. <laughs> oh, okay. So we went right now. Again, you know, I'm thinking what? Ching, 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 ching. You know, we got a pediatric neurologist waiting for us in the emergency room of MCG. It's not the cheaper one, the two down there. And, uh, and so we went down, and the pediatric neurologist looks at her, comes, comes back and talks to us and says, if she survives, she'll be in a wheelchair the rest of her life. She'll be on a respirator within 48 hours. Well, I can remember that. And I was reading through the Bible. That, it was the hardest year of my life. 
if I could get year, rid of a year of my life, that's the year I'd get rid of. But I'm grateful for that year of my life. Does that make sense? I mean, some of you can remember those. You know, you want to get rid of it, but you're thankful for it as well. I was reading through the Bible that year. And that, that was Friday night. That next day was Saturday. I was sitting with Gabrielle that day. She was in this big... Now, you got to understand, Gabrielle was the whirlwind. You know how energy she is now. She's always been. She was born July 8th. I always called her my firecracker. I mean, she just has energy galore bursting out of her. Out of her eyes, just everything. And I'm watching my little firecracker, my little burst of energy, my little whirlwind, in this big crib thing. She couldn't even sit up anymore. I mean, her face was sagging. All her muscles were just going away. Guess what I was scheduled to start reading that day? Job. <laughs> I sat there in that, that hospital room and read the book of Job, thinking, holy Lord, this is nothing compared to what Job experienced. And I remember praying, God, we give each of the kids when they're born. If this is how you want to be glorified through Gabrielle, then may you be glorified. She never went on a respirator. Within 24 hours, it has stopped. People were praying all over the world for us. Southern Baptist. I mean, it was really amazing. I mean, we had a, my, 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 my closest friend at the time was a Southern Baptist Sunday school teacher out in St. Louis. And I, I called him up, and man, he had Southern Baptists around the world praying for, for me. And I understand, I was an independent Baptist back at the time who really didn't like Southern Baptists a whole lot. Anyway, so it was a really humbling thing for me as well at that moment. And, um, and we went home on Monday. We went home on Monday. And the, the, the hospital overcharged us. I, I submitted to them to, be, to have it checked out again because we knew what we received. And so they came back and they undercharged us. I massively undercharged us. And so I called them back up and I said, wait, you know, you didn't charge us enough. And the lady kind of stopped for a moment. You know, it was like, you could almost picture her going, huh? <laughs> you know? And she says, I'm sorry, it's already been audited. That's your final bill. The pediatric neurologist never charged us. Anyways, the life of Job. God says, so do you see him? Job came down and messed with him. Or Satan came down and messed with Job one more time. Gave him boils. But even in all that, Job did not sin. He questioned, he struggled with God through it all. But he did not sin in all that. God came down and challenged him. And then he blessed him beyond that. But in all that, the source of the trial for Job at that moment was who? Was Satan. But again, remember that Satan couldn't have done it if what? God hadn't allowed it. Consider Peter. The night in which Jesus was betrayed. They're there having the, the dinner together. Jesus, we're told in John chapter 13, in the midst of that, took off his, his outer garment, put on a towel, and went and washed the, the disciples' feet. Does anybody know why he did that? We're told in Luke 22 about that, because at that time, after Jesus had said, listen, one of you is going to betray me, there began to be a great debate among the disciples. Not necessarily about who was going to be the one who betrayed him, but it probably started there, but it ended up being who was the greatest among them. And on the heels of that, then, Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, <laughs> so you wonder who was in the middle of the, the greatness here, all right? He says, Peter, i got something to say to you. 
Peter said, say on, teacher. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. When you are converted, when you are restored, encourage your brethren. So what happened? Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. I gave him permission, and you are going to fall flat on your face. But after you get back up, go and encourage your brethren. Now, I'd like to think that would get me, get me a little bit awake. A few short minutes later, they're out in the garden of Gethsemane, right? Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, pray that you don't fall to temptation. Pray so you don't fall to temptation. He goes away, comes back, finds Peter, Peter James, and John doing what? Sleeping. Sleeping away, like us. He says, wake up. Can't you pray with me for one hour? Pray so you don't fall to temptation. He goes away and he prays. He comes back. What is Peter, James, and John doing? Sleeping again. He wakes him up and says, Can't you just pray with me for an hour? He says, I forget it. Don't worry about it. They're coming. They come. Peter grabs his sword. He cuts off Malchus's ear. That's the, the servant of the high priest. Jesus reaches down and grabs the ear. Puts it back on Malchus's head. Right? You think everybody thinks something's going on here and they forget, forget about arresting him. They didn't forget about arresting him. They still arrest him. But after that... What happens to Peter? He takes off. He flees. But then he comes back and he starts to follow at a short distance, right? And he goes into the courtyard. And then he's challenged three times. Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times, right? And what happened? Three times he was asked if he was a follower of Jesus. Three times he denied Christ. Now, in all that trial, in all that tribulation, in all that temptation tempestuous situation, if you would. Where did it come from? It came from Satan. Jesus said to himself. He told Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. I'm praying for you, Peter. But you're going to fall. Some trials come from Satan. For sure. Trials, temptations. Some periosmos come from Satan. But remember, God is sovereign. God has to allow them. Second source, though, is ourself. In James chapter 1, and uh, you can look at that, and throughout James 1, there is a lot, and we may go there in a moment, but anyways, there's, there's a lot there about um, trials. But what I want you to understand, when it says in the very beginning, brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse kinds of what? Trials, right? When you fall into various kinds of trials, it's the word periosmos, it's the exact same word that we're going to see here used, translated the word temptation. Okay? So all throughout that, that chapter there, when you read about those trials and temptations, it's all the same thing. It's a periosmos. It's a troublesome event. But note what James says here in verse 13 to 15. He says, let no one say when he is periosmos, okay, when he is tempted, when he is tried, I am tempted or tried periosmos by God, for God cannot be periosmos, right? He can't be tempted or tried by evil, nor does he himself periosmos anybody else. But each one is periosmos when he is drawn away of his own desires and is enticed. And when the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Now understand again, this is really a mind-boggling thing. What is a periosmos? It's a troublesome event. It can either be a trial, or it can be a temptation. So, 
trials and temptations come from? Do they come from God? No. God says so himself by the Holy Spirit through the, through the pen of James. God himself is not tempted, nor does he do it to anybody else. Now, he allows it, though. He allows it. That's what we talked about with Job. And he allows it to come from ourselves as well. We bring on trials to ourselves. Now, we may walk through the trial, but the reality is, it probably was a decision that I made or somebody else made that brought the trial on. I ride, I'm riding down the road, I've got a green light, and you smash me from my side because you forgot the, that you're supposed to do one of the red light. Stop. Now, did I make any improper decisions at that time? Maybe I did. Maybe I should have been looking to the side to see if he'd come through that red light. But no, I mean, theoretically, I didn't do anything wrong at that moment, right? But you did. And you giving in to your own desires at that moment, whether you were rushed or whatever it was, whether you were thinking about something else and you weren't thinking about the red light, there was sin in you that caused you to run through that red light. And your sin had an effect upon who? Upon me. Now all of a sudden, I'm faced with a what? A periosmos. Now it's either a trial or a temptation. How I respond in the, midst, in the heat of the moment is going to reveal something about me, isn't it? We have this, this epidemic today called road rage. It's called sin. It's called revealed sin. It's what it's called. It's, it, none of this, none of this it's, it's a psychological thing and, it's, and, and, and we just have to work through it. No, it's sin. It's sin. It's anger. It's, it's uncontrolled anger. We're each tempted when we're drawn away of our own lust. So we're each given this opportunity, um, this event, um, when we're drawn away of our own desires. So, the purpose of trials, secondly, um, thirdly, the purpose of trials is to do what? First, it's to strengthen the perseverance of your faith. The strength and the perseverance of your faith. Look at what Romans 5, 3 and 4 says. Now this is in the, the point where we're told that Jesus Christ is the, uh, the he is the, the means of our peace with God. That we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, Paul goes on, he says, And not only that, but we also glory in what? Tribulations. This is the word that we're, we have here in Revelation to the church of Smyrna. That you're going to go through tribulation. Many of us don't like to think that we're going to go through tribulation. We think that's for Israel. But the same word is used. We're going to go through tribulation. We glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces what? Perseverance. And perseverance, character. No, Note, I've got dokamos there, the variant of dokamos that that word is. Again, what does the word dokamos mean? It means to be proven or tested genuine. It is genuine. And so when tribulations come... Tribulations produce perseverance. Perseverance prove that you are genuine. When the trial or tribulation comes, and you are able to walk through it, it will strengthen the perseverance of your faith. And secondly, we'll see it in a moment, it will prove that you really are who you claim to be. Character. Who is your character? Secondly, 
from 1 Corinthians 10.13, this is a, an important thing as well in this. It says, no temptation or periosmos, no troublesome situation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be what? Periosmos, trialed or tempted beyond what you are able. But with the periosmos, the temptation, will also make a way of escape, that you may be able to escape. Do you get it? If a trialsome situation, a temptatious situation comes to you, if you are a child of God, if you know Him, okay, that's a caveat, I'm assuming for a moment, but if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your Abba, your Daddy, who is the head of your house, will not allow anything to come into your life that he doesn't believe, what? That you can handle. So, in a sense, if God allows it in your life, he knows, he believes, that you can stand up to it. If you don't stand up to it, whose fault is it? Yours. Mine. Because I don't have as much confidence in me as God does. I'm not looking to him as strongly as I ought to look. Because God very clearly says that anything that comes to me is something that's just very common to man. But in God's faithfulness, he won't allow it to come if I can't handle it. So if I say I can't handle it, what am I saying about God? Not only does he not know, he's not what? What does it say here? Use the word. He's not faithful. Very good, Matthew. I heard your voice, but I can't see your body. Anyways, where are you? That was Liz? Oh, it was? I thought it was, I, I thought it was Matthew. Boy, that's pretty cool. All right. Good job, Liz. That's exactly right. It's an amazing thing. So, would you sit here today and declare that God is not faithful? No, not at all. But what about in the middle of a trial? Secondly, it's not just to, to prove, or to, to strengthen the, the perseverance of my faith, but it's to prove, as we said from James or from, from Romans 5, the genuineness of our faith. First of all, when my faith is proven, it is as a testimony to others. 1 Peter 1, 3-9 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you can read this. I know there's a lot on here, so it's smaller. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept, preserved, by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed, apocalypto, which is our word for revelation, the apocalypse, okay? In the last time, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various periosmoses, trials, temptations, that the genuineness, dokamos, of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested, Dakamas, 
by fire may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy, inexpressible, full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, he goes on and continues, Peter continues on, and says in chapter 2, that in light of all this, the, 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 real, the livingness of our faith, that it, we are supposed to shine before the rest of the world, that God would receive the glory in the days of visitation. How I go through a trial, how I go through a temptation, is not just for me, but it's for people watching me as well. It's one of the greatest testimonies that the world has that God is real and that God is bigger than the world himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 18 and 19. Says, this is in the context just prior to the, Paul's discussion of communion. Okay? And he says, For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part I believe it. Why? This is great. For there must also be factions among you. Why? That those who are dokamas, those who are genuine, proven genuine by tests, may be recognized among you. In the midst of the divisions, in the midst of the turmoil, in the midst of the, the chaos, those who are genuine will continue to stand and stand for righteousness. Do you get it? But then he applies it after his discussion on communion to us individually. He says, but let a man examine, test himself for genuineness, test himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. When we come together for communion, we always give a time for prayer, for, for reflection, for us to judge ourselves, to seek the Lord's face, so that we would not be judged by God. We're supposed to test ourselves. The idea of that word is like a, a woman who has this, this great big rock on her, on her hand, this kind of whitish, uh, clearish rock that has many facets and it, it just it sparkles and it's it's beautiful and and it's huge and and everybody admires it and thinks she must be very rich and such because she has such a big rock diamond and she's walking about and one day she is is introduced to somebody she gives it the hand you know the like this thing and and the, the man takes her hand and he looks at it and goes madam this is an exquisite gem May I take a closer look at it for a moment? And she says, oh, by of course. And so, out of his pocket, he pulls out a little jeweler's monocle, or whatever they call that thing, the little magnifying glass thing, and he puts it in his eye, and he begins to look at it, and he says, Madam, he says, this is a remarkable specimen of a cubic zirconium. Her rock all along was just a fake. But in the eye of the expert... It was found out. God is the one who tests our hearts. The second thing on the, is the testimony of ourselves, the assurance of our faith. I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where it confirms exactly what I just stated about God being the one who knows. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, last verse.
It's not he, for not he who commends himself is approved. Guess what word that is? Dokimos. But whom, what? The Lord commends. You can tell everybody you want to that you're saved. You can tell everybody you want to how close to the Lord you are. We're like this, dude. I mean, Jesus and I, it doesn't get any closer. I mean, it's like bonding glue between us. But really, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 18 says what? It's not whether you say it. It's whether God says it. Have you passed the test? There are some other verses on your sermon note sheet you can look at. Hebrews 3 Verses 12 to 14 basically says that, that if you persevere to the end, then you really are saved. Hebrews chapter 6, which is a passage. In fact, go there, because I want to deal with this. I don't want you to just read it on your own. Hebrews 6 is a passage that, that people look at and they think that it declares that you can lose your salvation. Far from it. It declares that you can't. It's impossible. Look at beginning at verse... Verse 4, chapter 6. It says, it is what? Impossible. It's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they have crucified for themselves the Son of God and put him to the open shame. Many people stop right in the middle of that and they miss what was stated right from the get-go. What is Paul, or whoever the writer of Hebrews is saying right off the bat. It's impossible. This is an impossible thing. It is impossible for those who are truly saved to do what? To fall away and be saved again. It cannot happen. So, it's not going to happen. But look, what he says though. And this is where I say that it really enforces it. Verse 7. For the earth, this is an illustration he's given now, for the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. Okay? So, something that's of a plant that grows, it, 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 it starts to be nurtured and it begins to be fruitful, God what? God blesses it. But look what it goes on. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is what? Rejected. Anybody want to have an idea what that word is? It is adakamas. That is the dakamas with the not genuine. It is proven not genuine. When the fruit begin to come out on that branch, it shows what it was. It didn't come out with fruit. It came out with what? Thorns and thistles. And near to being cursed, whose end is to be what? Burned. John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me, and I in him, the same will bear forth, bring forth much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But he says that there are those that are dried up, and they're going to be gathered up and they're going to be thrown into the fire. And people say, oh, they lost their salvation. No, they didn't lose their salvation. They never had it. It just proved that they never were. That's what Hebrews 6 is saying. If someone appears to have accepted Christ, and then they reject the faith, it proves what? They never had it. It was all about themselves and it wasn't about God. Do you get it? They were proved to be disgenuine. Now, let's take this full circle. Go all the way back. Okay? Because understand it's coming from Smyrna. Okay? So what is it 
in all this, that's going to prove the genuineness of your faith. The, the, the troublesome event. The trials. God allows the trials to come into your life. To strengthen your faith and to prove your faith. Do you get it? You will be so much stronger after going through the trials than you ever were before. If you really are His. But if you're not His, as the fire heats up, somewhere along the line, you'll get out of the crucible. Because you never earned it to begin with. Do you get it? I really believe that in this country, probably in my lifetime, the church of Jesus Christ will go through some of the trials that they're going through throughout the world right now. And when that happens, those who are true will be revealed. And so, back to Christ's challenges to them about the tribulation, it's going to be imminent. It's about to happen. It's, it's so you can be tested. The intensity of it. Look at the intensity. He says right off the bat, he says, now it's only going to last what? Ten days. It's going to last about ten days. Now there are those who would like to, again, allegorize this and say, well, he really doesn't mean ten days. Well, okay, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. So that means that they're going to go through a what? Ten thousand years. No, come on. That, no, none of the people who use the epic theory would say that this period of church history is ten thousand years old. Okay? I think that Probably, literally, he's talking about 10 years. But, there is a possibility that he is talking about a short period of time. Because Hebraically, and you have again on your sermon note sheets. He said literally 10 years. 10 years, 10 days. Sorry, literally 10 days. Thank you. Now, if you guys hear that, you got to tell me. My mouth goes too fast sometimes. Anyways, 10 days, okay? But Hebraically, this statement, 10 days is used to, re to refer to a short period of time. And so you have on your sermon note sheet some references. You have Genesis chapter 22, I believe on there. Um, 24. Genesis 24, verse 55. 1 Samuel 25, verse 38. Daniel 1, verses 12 and 14. And each one of those, um, 10 days is used as a generic short period of time. Okay? So, whether this is literally 10 days, or whether Christ is saying a short period of time. Okay? What he's saying is, it's going to happen very soon, and it's not going to be very what? It's not going to be long. You're going to be able to what? Endure this. However, there is a second half of that verse as well, that he says what? What the cost potentially is going to be. Because he says, be faithful until death. Now if he says that this tribulation is going to come on, you're going to be thrown in prison and all this kind of stuff, but don't worry about it, it's only going to last 10 days, but be faithful until death, and you'll get the crown of life. That means that some of them, potentially, were going to what? Die. The tribulation wasn't going to take, be long. It was going to be relatively short. But it was going to be intense enough that some of them were going to die. And in this, I ask myself, how strong is my faith? How strong is my faith in this moment? The investment. Be faithful in what? You get the crown of life. Again, you've got verses there that you can go to. It talks about different crowns that you can earn. The crown of glory, the crown of righteousness, the crown of life. 
honestly don't know at this moment to stand here and tell you whether I think that all those crowns are just one crown all combined or whether there's potentially different crowns. There are different theories that are out there. I do believe that there are different rewards in heaven. So whether these are conjunction with those different rewards or whether they all really refer to the same thing and that is just a crown of salvation, I kind of think that's the idea, kind of like the helmet of salvation. That's where I lean to that the crown of glory, the crown of righteousness, and the crown of life is all the same crown that we're referred to. Because we'll take off our crowns, we're told, and what? Lay them at, at, at God's feet. And we'll see that later on in the book of Revelation. So that's, if you kind of push me into a corner, that's where I'm going to go. But I'm okay with people who say that they think that there's, you know, different crowns out there. That's okay too. So, but we're told by Jesus that if we're faithful, we're going to be rewarded. Okay? So there's something that's out there. There's an investment in the midst of your trial. Don't just think, ah, just, I'll, I'll give it up. Don't give it up. God will reward you for your faithfulness in the midst of that tribulation. Now, finally, his promise. What's the promise? This is incredible. I love this. Because of, read it and, and think about it. Those who overcome, that's the word Nikon, we talked about it last week, Nike, shall not be wronged, adiko, of the second death. Now, the word Nikon refers to the, it's actually Nikon, refers to the victorious ones. Those who are victorious. Those who are the winners. Those who are the conquerors. Okay? And the word Adikeo refers to being judged wrongfully or unrighteously. So look at what he says. Those who overcome what? These tribulations. Those who overcome the trials of life. Shall not be judged wrongfully or unrighteously of the second death. Read into it. Go to verse ahead of it. What potentially was happening in the prior verse? The tribulation. Remember the tribulation? Remember it said that, that it was coming from the synagogue of Satan and all this kind of stuff? And that what was going to happen? The devil was going to do what? Throw some of them in jail. Were they going to be thrown in jail righteously? The answer is probably not. And Jesus Christ, in the end, comes to them and gives them this promise. Stick to it. Be faithful. Be strong. Continue on. Be an overcomer. Why? Because when you get to the, the real judgment, the second death judgment, I'm not going to judge you unjustly. Ultimately, where should the focus, my focus be, when I'm in the midst of all those trials? The ultimate judgment. It's ultimately standing before the throne of God. He is the ultimate judge. He is the ultimate assessor of the genuineness of my faith. I don't have to worry about what the people on the earth will do to me. They may throw me in jail. They may cause me to starve to death. They may fuck out my eyes. They may cut off my tongue. They may chop off my head. But if my eyes are focused upon God and His judgment, then none of that matters. But again, as I talked about Balthasar Hummeyer last week, if we have our eyes focused on the here and now, it does affect how strong we stand up in the midst of those trials. So I encourage you to stand firm. Oh, I hit the wrong button again. Are you facing any trials? Remember, it's the testing of your faith. Where is your focus? 
What or who are you trusting in in the midst of the trials? Finally, be encouraged. There is a purpose. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you, Lord, that you are the God who provides. You are the God who protects. God, I am so thankful that you have desired, Lord, for us to, to be called by your name and to be a witness and a testimony of your grace amongst those that are about us. Lord, I pray that you would cause us, Lord, you who began the good work, that you perform it the day of Christ. I know you will. But, Lord, that you would cause us to stand firm in the faith to glorify you amongst those that are about us. Lord, I know that there is a lot of periosmoy going on in this church right now. There are people without work. There are people who are going through financial situations. There are people who are going through medical situations. It could be marital. Lord, I pray that you will go before each of them and cause them to be strong in the faith. That you will help them each individually to look to you. And that, Father, on the other side of the shortness of this trial, that you will be magnified. That they will recall your faithfulness through it all. Lord, and because of these things, we will see more and more come to know you as their, sa- as their Savior. We know that throughout the ages, Father, that the church has blossomed in the days of persecution. Lord, help us not to be stagnant waiting for that day, but to be firm in our faith now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.